You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Justin Duke, who is using Django and Python to build a tool for building, growing, and sending out email newsletters. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? For sure. Uh, my name is Justin. I've been building products to kind of like satisfy my own weird esoteric use cases for a couple of years now. Um, I used to run a newsletter on a platform that is, I think, still around but deprecated called Tiny Letter. And I was just writing about, you know, random technical things, uh, programming packages in uh, PyPy that I really liked or blog articles I found useful. And I kept on running into a bunch of like weird edge cases around the interface not supporting Markdown or not validating links or subscribers getting dropped randomly. And I had kind of the the worst thing you can say to yourself as a developer, which is like, oh, I can build a better version of this in a weekend. That'll be fine. And yeah. of course, I, I carved out, I think it was like a Labor Day weekend, a three-day weekend, where I was just going to sit, get a bunch of coffee, and try and implement like my own self-hosted version of this that had a list of emails, would uh, send out one markdown rendered email to everyone, and that was kind of the end of it. It ended up taking, I think way longer than just the two or three days. It took me like two weeks. But after two weeks, I had built something just for my own use case that I really, really liked, that I enjoyed using and thought was legitimately better than the previous tools I had tried. I was sharing some some like screenshots and some code snippets on Twitter and on email with a couple friends. And I had some folks reach out and be like, I would use this if you like made this an actual product and not just something that you were going to open source or have self-hosted on your like home desktop. So I created a user model. I tried to figure out a very janky monetization scheme and I published it and that was buttoned down. Um, that was in like late 2016 and it's just been cranking ever since, slowly growing from more and more people using it as I try and add more and more features and more and more stability and kind of enjoying the the slow ramp of it becoming more and more of a production-ready, like, serious tool. Yeah, that's really awesome to hear that it just started as, like, scratching your own itch. Like, those tend to be, in my opinion, like, the best products ever because it's, like, you're actually using the thing that you're building. You're not just trying to, like, invent something on the side. Exactly. And it's been really useful to the extent that it's a product that I'm very opinionated about of I want to make sure that it's always the thing that I would use out of all of the other tools, which has been honestly a really useful constraint for trying to figure out what the niche is and like what the vision is for the product. Uh, it definitely limits it because personally speaking, like I'm a technical user. I feel very comfortable dealing with things like Markdown or webhooks or having to muck around with DNS settings. But one of the things that I don't think I fully appreciated until I launched it and until I saw Button Down grow is that there's actually a lot of people who fit into that bucket. It wouldn't be like the bucket that you could grab the largest TAM, the largest total addressable market for, but there's a very sizable niche of folks who felt the exact same way I did of, I just want a simple, minimal product that helps me do these core functions as easily and as elegantly as possible. Very cool. So you mentioned this has been up and running since 2016. So we're dealing with like about four years now. Did you just go all at this uh, like full time since then? And are you the sole developer on this? 
no and yes, respectively. It was always and still is kind of a weeknights and weekends project for me. When I was first building it out, it was uh, long weeknights and very, very hermit-oriented weekends. I think I was spending, you know, like 20, 25 hours a week in addition to my full-time job trying to build it out and make sure that it was stable. Um, But one of the advantages that I've enjoyed with Button Down is that I can kind of pause feature development or pause work on it if I'm really not feeling interested in it or really just want a break and want to relax and just enjoy my full-time job, enjoy some of my other hobbies. Like there was, say, around this time last year, Button Down was stable. It was growing around, you know, five to 10% month over month. But I just, I couldn't get myself jazzed about working on it. So I just let it sit. I would do some bug fixes. I would answer some customer service emails every now and then. But I was spending maybe two or three hours a week on it total. And I find it really rewarding to have this kind of project that if I wanted to, I could probably make a full-time job out of it. But right now I don't want to. I just want to kind of have it as almost like a a garden that I can return to every now and then. It's stable, it's growing, it's prosperous. And when I want to work on it, I can, but I don't feel pressured to constantly be working on it, constant, constantly been tinkering with it. Right. Yeah, that's a really uh, nice way to go about it. So just to set the stage here, like what type of uh, traffic are you dealing with here? If you want to share that information, like, you know, daily hits, monthly hits, email sent out, like whatever makes sense for uh, your setup. Yeah, that's a a great question. And kind of ironic, because traffic and button down is sort of a, a weird beast, at least the what I would consider like problematic traffic of steady state traffic is nothing too bonkers. It's in the realm of I'd say like a couple dozen requests a second. Um, nothing that like G unicorn plus Django plus some caching and smart database access can hit. The really spiky traffic though comes from sort of two parts. One is sending out really, really large email blasts. So I've got some folks using button down who have, uh, around a hundred thousand subscribers or more and hitting Mailgun or SES, which is Amazon web surfaces email framework with that amount of request and making sure like nothing's dropped, making sure there's no errors, pulling in all of the responses and all of the web books. Like that's a pretty massive source of spikiness. And what, what I would loosely call production angst um, is making sure that like when one of the power users sends out a lot of this traffic and volume that I can handle it all well. The other on the read side is uh, posts going viral. Like in a lot of ways, Button Down isn't just a newsletter platform. It's also a blog platform. The way most people consume uh, emails on Bundown is like reading it in your browser because there's an archive. And often I have users who go viral on like Reddit or Twitter or Hacker News. And then there's sort of the uh, quote unquote hug of death, right? Where you suddenly have to deal with all these incoming requests super quickly. And the first couple times that happened for me, I very quickly learned where my uh, where my database and lack of caching acumen was was most painful. And I had to spend some time really making sure that that use case worked well, because if you're an author who's like trying to publish something and you hit the front page of one of these aggregator services, the worst possible customer experience is like, oh, congrats, more people are interested in ever than your content and the site you're hosting it on is going down. So I had to be really, really sensitive to make sure I could handle those spiky loads. Yeah, that seems to be like one of the scariest situations to be in, but also I guess like maybe one of the most profitable maybe because it's like, yeah, you have to make sure your customers' customers are able to to see their things. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, that that's a rough one. What do you do when you're on the front page of Reddit and you're getting like 750,000 hits in three hours? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, 
I remember the, it wasn't the first time this happened. It was like the second or third, I think it was on Hacker News or something. And there were like some snarky comments in the, in the comment section of, wow, yet another blog can't handle this amount of traffic. I figure people should have solved this by now. It's, it's not a crazy problem. You need to be able to adjust for this. And it was like, it was definitely harsh feedback, but it was also kind of warranted in the sense of like, yeah, this is something that I just need to be better at. I, this is something, this is a use case I hadn't really addressed. Again, coming from my perspective of my personal newsletter has a, I want to say 1,500 subscribers. Like it is not a large newsletter by any means. It's just me sending out some stuff that I like and it's never gone viral. It wasn't one of those use cases or edge cases that I had really properly considered. And once that happens a couple times, it gives you sort of the, the kick in the pants you need to be like, okay, I need to take a step back. I need to actually architect this well. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be really, really painful for, to your point, like the most profitable and the most valuable customers I have. Right. Just just to be clear too, like those customers or any customer that you have, they're paying you some amount per month, right? For the service, like similar to other newsletter services. Yeah, there are some folks using a free tier button downs pricing model. And again, I... I think I phrased it as like janky or wonky, and it still is a little janky or wonky. Um, it means that if you're a small newsletter, you've got less than a thousand subscribers, you don't have to pay anything unless you want to use some of the more esoteric power usury features. Um, you could very conceivably have a completely free newsletter, send it out to you know your couple hundred friends, and that's your extent. Button downs monetization and pricing comes in when your newsletter is sufficiently large or sufficiently like gnarly enough if you want to do advanced analytics, if you want to use the API, if you want to use webhooks, things like that. That's where I start charging because I've realized that a lot of people kind of fit in my use case of, I don't really want to pay for a newsletter. I just want something that I can use really easily, but I don't want it enough that I'm willing to pull out my wallet. But a lot of people sort of graduate from that step to a, oh, I'm using this to promote one of my products or to promote my consultancy or to do something that will get me money down the line. This is sort of a business venture for me. And I am willing to incur an expense because I find value in the product. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's also something I've always kind of struggled with too. You know, I, I sell courses, so it's like video courses and uh, an email list is very, very important, but it becomes a no brainer to pay for a service for that because it's like, well, the return on investment is usually pretty good. Yeah. I think the boom of email in general over the past, like, five, six years, whether it's with more automation heavy services like Drip or ConvertKit or more publishing focused, journalism focused services like Substack or Medium has really kind of relit this fire for a lot of people that the most valuable data set you can probably have, whether you're a writer or you're an entrepreneur, is like a list of warm, qualified email addresses because that's your best possible audience. You can go through social media, but you're going to have to deal with fickle algorithms. You can go through SEO and you'll get organic traffic. But again, that's pretty fickle and there's no real certainty of you reaching people. But you having like a direct unfettered audience with the people you're trying to reach, the people who have like explicitly opted into your service or to whatever you are selling or promoting or advertising is really, really powerful. Like the, the CTRs I see on button downs newsletters compared to like my my ill-fated experiments with display ads or with other more traditional marketing routes. It's just like, oh, going through email works so much better than all of these other options. Yeah, absolutely. So now maybe let's talk a little bit about uh, what's running the show here, because you mentioned earlier that you are using Django. So what was your motivation for picking Django and Python? Yeah, great question. My 
motivation was, I think, very lazy, but in a smart way, which was I had a lot of experience with Python and Django. There was this blog post that I still read like once or twice a year. I think it's by Dan McKinley, who was, I believe, an Etsy or Shopify engineer. Um, The title of the post is Choose Boring Technology, with the idea of if you are trying to build something new and something interesting, you want to limit the number of things you're like changing, limit the number of unknowns you have in the situation. And for me, when I had this idea of like, I'm going to build this for myself, my logic was, I know Python and I know the Django stack really, really well. I know Heroku, and that's going to handle a lot of the deployment stuff and abstract it out for me. I want to find one thing that I'm sort of interested in messing around with. And in that case, it was Vue, which was then a very, very new sort of web and front end framework. It was like, okay, Vue is going to be the interesting bit. Everything else I'm going to try and choose as boring things as possible, where I know the pros, I know the cons, and I'm familiar with it. I don't want to have to spend an hour looking up how to do like database migrations or doing these day-to-day things. I just want to be building the product. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that blog post, is that the one where they coined that term like innovation tokens? Yes, that is exactly the one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very good read. And I totally live by that as well. It's also interesting because a couple of folks have been on the show when we talked a little bit about that. And like someone, I forgot who it was, apologies, but they made a really great point about like, if you're going to build something, right, it's like, are you going to be building that for the sake of building it or building that for the sake of learning like a new tech to build it in? Like you have to make that distinction. Yeah, I 100% agree. I've often had projects where I was just like, I'm going to spend a handful of days messing around with this new technology. And I don't expect to publish it. I don't want to do anything in particular with it. I just want to have a topic by which I can explore like Redis, or I can explore this new queuing mechanism, or I can explore uh, Vercel. And those are all really fun. But when I'm struck by the notion of this is a thing I want to build and I want to complete, then I tend to shy away from doing new technologies just for the sake of them. Yeah. So going back to Django here, that's all tried and true. Uh, are there specific features of Django that you're using in this app that really helped you build it quickly or you know just get you up and going like the admin or any apps that are built into Django? Yeah, it's having used Django for so long, I almost forget how much stuff you get out of the box. And I'm probably forgetting some like honestly i feel like django provides you with so many batteries that i'm almost guilty of taking them for granted at this point like there's a lot you get for free and there's pretty much everything that comes in the standard django library i'm probably using at some point uh you called out the admin which i think is one of the things that i absolutely took for granted until i was working with a friend on an unrelated project who was just sort of using a conventional like node based stack so entirely javascript and they didn't have a built-in admin framework. And I was like, well, how, how are you going to like look through uh, the feed of new folks if you're trying to find this one object that's broken? And they're like, oh, well, I'll write a query. I'll hit the ORM. And that's completely fine. Like, I feel personally pretty comfortable with jumping into like Postgres or jumping into the shell and trying to figure out a problematic thing. But the ease of use of the admin and the extensibility where I've built out so many custom validation views for just standard tasks... Uh, that might take the cake in terms of most bang for the buck that I get from a Django feature. Uh, one of the philosophies I've tried to hold on to is if I ever have to do something 
in the console or something in the shell more than once, then it's time to bake it into the admin and have it be a first party tool that I can like add guardrails around and add logging around and add orchestration around. Because every time I do like one of these one-off operational tasks, I end up having to do it more than once. Like a, a very common pain point I ran into when I was first starting Bundown is the, I joke that the, the hardest part about running a newsletter tool is email validation. Uh, emails are very, very gross as strings. You can't really write a regex to satisfy them. You can't deterministically make sure if an email is valid or not. And often the, I think the preponderance of customer support emails I got were people saying, hey, your tool said this email was incorrect, but I can prove that it is correct here or vice versa of like, hey, you said this email was correct, but it's clearly invalid. Um, and so I would build out a suite of tools that would sort of handle these requests and I could send customers like reports of here are all of the ways I checked this email. Here are the ones where it's valid. Here are the ones where it's invalid or spammy. And building out those desire paths into the application itself and treating the admin and treating operations altogether like it's a tool to program and not just a handful of helter-skelter tasks has been really, really useful to save me time. Very cool. So just for clarity here, I mean, were you actually sending your end customers like the regular expressions that you were using to validate those emails or were you just sending them like the results of running that? <laughs> the latter. I think if I sent my end customers the actual regular expressions, some of them would have aneurysms. Uh, they have been gross. <laughs> I have still not found the magic grail of uh, email validation regex. A lot of places honestly now recommend just checking for like an at in the sign where there are so many edge cases, it's impossible to express. Any specific regex you choose is going to have some false positives and some false negatives. There, there really isn't that kind of holy grail. Even the HTML5 specs uh, specific email regex, I was looking into this, I think a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't handle uh, diarises or like specific Unicode characters. And it will say those are invalid, even though according to the email spec itself, those are valid. Yeah, it's absolutely insane trying to validate that with the regex. I, I remember Googling around and finding like, you know, like an 18,000 character one that still wasn't good enough. Yeah, it's a, it's a painful process. And it's frankly still one that hasn't been solved. I've joked with a friend that if I ever get bored of button down, what I'm going to do is just spin out the email validation API into its own product. Because as you might imagine, that is a cottage industry in of itself. Like there are a lot of very, very narrowly focused APIs that are just you give us an email address and we will return to you whether or not it's valid and all these reasons why it is or isn't valid. Um, it's a, I don't want to call it a booming industry, but it's a one that exists. Right. seems to be, I would imagine, a big market as well. Like there's lots of people sending emails out through services. Yeah, definitely. There's a sense that there are perhaps too many like developer tools startups or developer tools companies lately. You see this sentiment a lot on like hacker news and stuff. And I think to a limited extent, that's true of... There are a lot of companies that are narrowly focused on selling pickaxes to like other startups. And you see this with, I think, analytics companies in particular, where it's just there are so many different analytics solutions and so many different data warehouse solutions, and all of them feel very blended together. But I think where people often forget is something that you would call a quote unquote developer tool is also very, very useful for the long tail of companies and SMBs out there where Email validation is something that's not just used by like uh, software as a service companies, but it's used by publications. It's used by SMBs. Like if you are a moderately successful Shopify store, right? Like you're selling tens of thousands of merchandise a month. You're collecting email addresses and you need a really reliable way of 
making sure that your list is clean and that you can reach all of those customers. Because again, going back to what we were saying earlier, like that's your most profitable audience possible. And there's a lot of money in that sort of niche as long as you look beyond the lens of like, okay, who are the companies that are often on like Hacker News or Reddit programming or stuff like that? What are they interested in? If you take the wider lens, you'd be really surprised at how large some of these markets are. Yeah, they're absolutely monstrous. So going back to your app here, is this thing a single monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple of microservices? Because I would imagine you probably have maybe some decent amount of moving parts to get this app rolling. Yeah, it's structured as a monorepo and a monoservice, though Django gives you the ability to break up your large project into sort of subdirectories or specialized apps. And I use that because you can deploy apps sort of separately and scale them up and down as necessary. This is one of the things that I messed around a lot with as I was trying to figure out some of the traffic issues. To use a specific example, one of the really large sources of load that I was dealing with were these incoming webhooks from Mailgun and Amazon of, okay, a bunch of people have opened this email. I need to record that data so I can present it for analytics. And that was its own app. So I was like, ooh, I wonder if I can be clever here and try and have that be its own uh, own specific dyno or own specific instance in Heroku that I can scale up and down and have it be nice and decoupled. And it was a really good experiment. I got to learn a lot from that and I got to clean up the code base and make it more performant. But I ended up realizing that the orchestration of that was too high relative to the performance gains I got. I got more... Um, I guess more velocity and more performance improvement out of just making sure that there weren't any DB reads on the main thread, making sure that I wasn't committing any of the classic newbie mistakes. But to have that sort of non-monoservice-based architecture, it just added a lot of upkeep that I didn't want to have to deal with. It was a, a very selfish move of not like necessarily the most correct from an architectural standpoint, but a most correct in terms of preserving my own productivity and sanity. Right. Well, it sounds like you did a great job because it's like, instead of just wondering about it, you just tried it out, figured it wasn't, you know, wasn't worth it. And then you just went back to what you're doing before. Yeah. One of the tactics that I've settled on because I'm working with, I think, a tighter time budget than most people have. Like I say, I try and constrain my work on Bundown to around like 15 to 20 hours a week. And those are usually the heavy weeks. So I need to make sure all of the time I'm spending is like as efficient and as valuable as possible. And often when I have these like uh, architectural daydreams, for lack of a better term, I am really strict with time boxing my engagement. Uh, I'll give myself a week or I'll give myself 10 hours to try out an approach and to try and get some sort of positive or negative signal that it's the right direction. I'm an engineer at heart and I will always like if you give me the option, I will spend eight hours refactoring something and making it look as pretty and performant as, and well typed and well tested as possible. But from a trying to push out features and trying to gain stability as quickly as possible sense, that can really be a lot of not wasted time, but poorly allocated time. So having time boxes and time constraints to make sure that I'm spending my time in a valuable, useful way has been really helpful. Yeah, no, that, that constraint stuff really helps. It, it stops you from going into like your test suite and then deciding like you want to rename your test functions to be a certain different style. And then before you know it, it's like, <laughs> you know, 30 hours later. Yeah, to use that exact example, uh, PyTest is a new-ish Python testing framework that I really, really love. I learned of it, I think, like 18, 24 months ago, messed around with it a little bit. And was like, oh, this is just clearly better than the classic unit test framework that I'd spent so long using. 
And I, of course, went into the thought process of, okay, how do I backport uh, button down to use this? And it was one of those sort of rabbit hole situations of, oh, but then you look at all of the, the casing and all of the mocking and all of the fixtures that you need to set up, where it's really easy to do with a greenfield or even relatively new project. But button down's at the point where it has thousands of tests and there's so much, there's four years of legacy code that I'm dealing with. Uh, I, I often have to curse uh, my prior self because I'm like, oh, why did I do this with the specific test that I definitely can't port to a different framework without rewriting the entire harness? And so after a day, I really had to pull the plug and be like, PyTest is amazing. I'm going to figure out how to piecemeal migrate this over at some point in the future, but I, it's just not the right use of my time right now. Right. So going back to the size of the app then, roughly how many Django apps do you have? And like maybe like lines of code if you happen to have that handy. Yeah, I've got seven or eight apps. Um, it's broken down mostly with the philosophy of what are the proper nouns? What are the Django objects that are really standalone? So for example, I have an events and analytics app. That's the one I was just talking about where that is all of the incoming webhooks getting received by some of my email providers handling all of that because it's written in such a way that it's completely decoupled from the rest of the app. It doesn't matter who the subscriber was. It doesn't matter what the originating email was. It's just taking information storing it, collating it, making it available in a data warehouse. I have a workhorse email app that, that is where the majority of the logic lies of all of the API methods that the UI uses, all of the logic for actually sending the emails. That's probably something I should break out at some point. And then I've actually gotten more aggressive as time has gone on with trying to be modular with the apps. The externally facing API is, it's an, is in its own app. The logic around paid subscriptions and monetization is in its own app. And a lot of these smaller apps have actually been really easy to reason about and work with. Um, even though I think I cling to the idea of having a monolith just in terms of interacting with Git, um, breaking down the actual modules has been really useful. To talk about the number of lines of code, I think it's around in the neighborhood of 120,000 lines. And I preface that with a lot of that is fixture files and YAML and things that weren't perhaps written by me, but you know, committed to the code base by some testing framework or something that I was doing. But it's at the point where, uh, and I, I feel like this is almost the, the strongest barometer. I look at some piece of code that I realize I haven't read or written to in like over 18 months. And I'm like, what is this doing? I have no working memory of this whatsoever. It's, it's grown to the point where I can't keep it all in my head anymore. And one of the things I've had to almost embarrassingly invest in at this point is like documentation just for myself so I can remember how things work down the line. Right. Yeah. Those are the best comments when you're just like, by the way, future self, like <laughs> there be dragons. <laughs> yeah. I ran into one issue with, uh, I set up relatively recently support for sending your email from a European mail server, which is for GDPR and data protection reasons, like something that's becoming more and more of a common request is like, I want all of my data completely located within the EU. I don't want you to store anything on a US server. And I had to muck around with a lot of the routing code to Mailgun, which is my main email service provider. That was to, uh, to 2017 Justin's credit, pretty rock solid. And I hadn't really had to touch it in a very long time, but I was reading through it and I was just like, my code style was so different back then. There were all these like very hacky things and it worked really well and it was well tested, but I just, I can't reason about all of this indirection and all of these like impure functions. It was a very humbling moment to be like, oh, right. I was 
not a great programmer back then. And I'm sure in three years from now, when I look at something that I wrote yesterday, I'm going to have the same thought for myself. Right. I have that moment basically every three days. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned uh, one of your innovation tokens was spent picking up Vue. Is this then like a full API driven app with Vue on the front end or is it mostly like Django templates on the back end? Great question. I broke up the app relatively recently. It used to be entirely um, view-driven with heavy, heavy use of DRF or Django REST framework, which handles a lot of the API and RESTful routing in a really, really nice way. My logic here was perhaps naively, everything is going to be pretty interactive and pretty complex. I might as well front load that investment by having the entire thing be a single page application. Relatively recently, I think this was three months ago, I took a step back and I completely redid all of the marketing material, the marketing pages, the splash pages, the feature pages, pretty much everything. And one of my decisions as I was doing that was to actually completely divest from Vue on that side, because I wanted the styles to be different and I wanted to be able to iterate really, really quickly. Vue is super powerful and I like it a lot, but I don't think anything has beaten the the REPL loop, the feedback loop of just hitting refresh and seeing some changes in your HTML and CSS. It's really easy to read about. It's very quick. You don't have to deal with like a JavaScript payload or anything. And it just works really well. It's been super rewarding. The entire application itself, like once you log in, all of that is still a monolithic view app that's been pretty well architected, or at least has improved in architecture compared to where it was a couple of years ago. I've made it more and more decoupled, use uh, things like Vuex. Uh, to handle state management, but all of that is still kind of a monolith. Okay, so then part of that 120 lines or 120,000 lines of code is that view code included? Yes. Sorry, I should have been more specific. Yeah, it's okay. And then for managing all of that JavaScript, are you using something like Webpack then or something else? Yeah, I'm using Webpack and the standard bevy of Webpack compilation tools. Uh, things like Babel, things like uh, ESLint and Prettify to make sure that everything's pretty well linted. And then I'm using Jest and most recently Storybook to handle uh, testing and verification of the components themselves. Okay. I haven't heard of Storybook. Is that one of those like user story type of tests? Like when this happens, then this and that stuff? I, I'm i probably going to just rant in a positive sense about Storybook for the next couple minutes. And I apologize in advance. Storybook is a tool to basically let you preview specific components that you passed in props in state two. It gives you a bunch of things for free, like hot reloading and visual regression testing. So if you were to accidentally change a component and it renders differently, like it looks differently, it will alert you in CI and in the browser. It really improves the feedback loop of building a new component. One of the things that I was struggling with as I iterate more and more on button down is like, there are some really weird state spaces that the application can get into. Like I'm adding a new upload image component, which requires you to log into the application, upload an image, upload an image that has certain constraints, like, oh, maybe this is a malformed PNG, or maybe this is a PDF. And Storybook lets you declare all those possibilities and view them in the browser as if you're modifying it like in the context of a sandbox, almost like CodePen or something. It makes it much easier for you to iterate quickly on a component and then embed it in your application. Yeah, that sounds like pretty much a must-have if you're doing heavy front-end development. It's relatively rare for me to adopt one of these newish flavor-of-the-month tools and think to myself, the hype was worth it. Like, 
often you look at some of these new things that are coming down the line, whether it's like a packaging tool or a testing tool, and it feels like a lot of marketing material and it doesn't actually impact your day-to-day like livelihood or your day-to-day productivity. Storybook has been, I think, the largest exception I can ever remember. It took me maybe a handful of an hour or two to set up and I was immediately reaping like the productivity gains. It has completely transformed for the better the way I build front-end components. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to, to drop a link to that one in the show notes. Now, maybe we can jump back to the back end. And do you recall any libraries that you use that really helped you move forward quickly? Like something in your requirements at TextFile? For sure. I think the single biggest one that I just called out a little bit earlier is Django REST Framework, which is technically not an official um, Django plugin, but I almost feel like it's an unofficial official Django plugin. If you look at a tutorial of like the things you should do when setting up Django, there's probably an 80% chance it mentions DRF. It's so easy to get working. It integrates so well with the rest of the application. It's very well supported. It's very performant. And it feels like a part of Django. It feels like you're not, you know, often if I'm using a third-party package, like I'll get a little hung up with edge cases in the interface design of like, oh, this API seems very weird or, oh, I feel like they didn't handle this edge case. Using DRF feels like I'm just using Django. Like I often forget that it's an actual like separate package and not part of the official Django ecosystem. On the like smaller side, there's definitely a long tail of uh, dependencies that I really, really like and I really, really underrate. And honestly, those are probably the harder ones to remember of... I feel like if you're really, really satisfied with a third-party dependency, it probably means you don't think about it that much and you're not using it that often. Um, the classic example for me is Django white noise, which is kind of a static serving dependency. It means you can serve static files from your Django server really, really well. It plays nice with CloudFront and things like that. And I forgot I had this installed. I remember reading about it and being like, oh, this is a good idea. And then going to my requirements file and being like, oh, I installed this. Two years ago, it took five minutes and it just works. I completely forgot I did this. I feel like that's almost the hallmark of a really, really strong dependency is that it recedes into the background. Um, The other one that I have to give a positive shout out for is RQ, which is a Python queuing system. It has a very, very bare bones API. And again, it just works. I don't really have to think about the fact that I'm using an async queuing system at all. I just have to decorate a given method and call it with the arguments and it's good to go. Beyond that, I've been trying to take a tactic of can I build out the functionality of this third-party dependency in a short amount of time? Mostly because there are often a lot of cases where you can pick up a dependency for something that is maybe a couple dozen lines of code. Then you're incurring the cost not of owning that code, but of owning a package that might be not maintained, right? Like what if you want to bump to Django 3 and suddenly it drops off support or you want to bump to a new Python version and it doesn't support. So I've been actually trying to fold more and more third-party dependencies into my ecosystem as my own code, as long as I have confidence that again, it doesn't violate the time box rule. I can like own this and have a good end-to-end understanding of it within a couple hours. Once it gets to the point where I need to think about, you know, concurrency or days worth of architecture for it, then I'll probably lean on the third party work. Right. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I'm pretty much the same way. Like, you know, I don't avoid all third parties uh, packages, but when I can, I'd rather write my own 200 lines of code instead of pulling in 
you know, like a 5,000 line of code, massive dependency that, you know, does a lot of things I don't need, or like you say, may just become out of date at some point. Exactly. Now, going back to some other stuff, maybe on the front end, do you work with WebSockets at all, like to offer some real-time components to the app? I've actually been working on a little bit of a proof of concept with WebSockets that hasn't hit prime time yet. But this has been, this is almost a inversion of my uh, innovation token use, which is, this is a thing that I'm doing specifically just because I want to mess around with WebSockets. I want to learn a bit more how they work. And I found kind of a nice product use case for it, which is of link checking. One of the things that Bundown does is if you have a newsletter with like 20 links in the body of your email, it'll check all of those 20 links and make sure that they're all valid. So you don't send out something with a broken link. Ah, very cool. Thank you. Uh, previously, it was entirely synchronous. And you can imagine that that's just a terrible idea of you have a single HTTP request that is synchronously checking like 20 different links and then returning a like 200 or 400, depending on if any of the links are invalid. And I've been working on ways to just improve that entire situation where it's like kind of a critical piece of your email drafting functionality, but it's very, very slow. It generates a non-trivial amount of load. It's pretty flaky. And I was like, oh, WebSockets would be really, really useful here to mess around with. Um, it hasn't quite hit the prime time yet or really in a production ready state because I'm almost budgeting my time on that as like fun budget and not work budget of I'm doing this mostly to learn WebSockets. It's not in the critical path of what I want to build with Bundown, but the fact that I'm building it on top of Bundown is just a nice externality. So it's not quite there yet, uh, but I'm getting to the point where hopefully in a month or two it will be. Yeah, no. So going back to what you said before about, you know, trying not to pull in third-party dependencies unless you really have to, sort of. Like when it comes to the WebSocket stuff, are you using things that are built into Django or is there some other library that you use or even a service for that? Yeah, Django has actually really upped their support for async and WebSockets recently. I've been pretty impressed with that. I haven't found the need to lean too heavily on the third-party ecosystem too much, but one of the things I've been really pleasantly surprised, though, it's also a little dangerous with the front-end ecosystem, as I'm sure you're aware. Like, it is so rich. I feel like there's a full-time job to, to be made in terms of evaluating a lot of competing front-end solutions to problems because I think one of the advantages, or not even advantages, but one of the characteristics you have of back-end programming is that the population is a little fractured, right? Like, you have Python programmers, you have Ruby programmers, you've got Scala developers. Like, you have this this uh, multiplicity of different languages and that inherently constrains the population for each of these languages and thus the third-party ecosystem. JavaScript doesn't have that because the critical path for any front-end application is going to touch JavaScript. Like I know there are a couple edge cases there, but the vast majority of front-end work is all in JavaScript. And one of the things that I personally kind of struggle with is analysis paralysis of, okay, even for very basic use cases. I was looking into pulling in a new tooltip component recently. And if you search like view tooltips, there are literally dozens of different solutions you can bring into your application. And then, okay, which ones do you choose? Do you go for a heuristic? Like what has the most stars or forks? Do you find something that has a nice demo? It's one of those things that I almost feel myself, uh, and this isn't a good habit, like shying away from just because I then get into the rabbit hole of, okay, do I want this package or this package or this package instead of like just building the thing. Right. And by the way, speaking of like front end components, do you use something like Bootstrap or something else? No, I was using Bootstrap 
very, very early on, like as I was just trying to get the basic UI working for, for button down. And I ended up realizing that subset of bootstrap that I was using was just so small that I could pull in the like 200 lines of CSS into my main.css file and like tailor it myself. I've been trying to shift towards more of a design system-y architecture where it's like, here's the color guide, here are the specific breakpoints you're using, but it's been sort of a entirely bespoke HTML and CSS setup. I don't know if that's the way I would go today if I were to reboot button down from scratch. There are a lot of like really nice, uh, I guess you would call them libraries, things like Tailwind or Tachyons that give you a lot of helper and utility methods very, very quickly. So you don't have to like reinvent how to center an image or stuff like that. But at this point, it's, I think, a combination of habit and technical debt that button down is just the CSS that I personally have written over the past few years. Right. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Tailwind because I was going to ask you uh, if you were using that, <laughs> but rolled your own. <laughs> I definitely would use Tailwind. It's great. Um, the strategy they've gone with too with i think it's called tailwind ui which is sort of the the paid offering that gives you pre-baked components using tailwind itself i think is both really good i've seen the components and they're very well designed and it's just very clever i almost feel an affinity towards certain things and certain offerings which is like oh that's a really good idea i'm really happy they did that it just makes sense and tailwind ui is one of those yeah that's a, a very cool product i i hope they have nothing but success because yeah it's a big time saver if you use something like that definitely so maybe now we could go back and talk a little bit more about your tech stack, because earlier you mentioned that you're using RQ. I haven't used that one personally. Is that the one that will actually use Postgres as a backend, or does it use something else? It uses Redis as a backend. I think it might have a Postgres option, but I've been pretty much my entire time using it, just been using Redis, because again, I am using Heroku on the backend. Heroku makes it a, a one-click situation to get a Redis instant that's tied to your application. And so it both worked in the, how do I get this online as quickly as possible sense? And I've also have had really, really nice stability. Um, I think there's often a worry that I have at least about using these fully hosted solutions like Heroku, where you don't have a lot of control over the underlying metal because it's all abstracted, but at least with Redis and their hosted version of Redis, it's been really nice. I haven't had to think about any administrative tasks or any like out of memory or eviction issues or anything like that. Um, I've been really pleasantly surprised by it. Nice. So when it came to picking RQ, did you do some back and forth versus picking that versus Celery or did you just use that on previous products? So you used it here? Yeah, I was actually more familiar with Celery early on. I And this is one of those situations where I should have documented better because I bet I had a very nuanced understanding of why I chose RQ over Celery, especially given that I think I had experience with both a little bit more with Celery, but like I had done the basic critical path of, okay, this is how you enqueue a job. This is how you uh, view your enqueue job. This is how you schedule a job. I think there was something about RQ and its basic API of setting various priorities and being able to monitor and change how you weight those priorities dynamically that I really liked, plus the API. I am I might be disparaging Celery, and I apologize in advance because I still really like Celery. I remember thinking that the API for RQ was just a little bit cleaner. I really liked the idea of you have a decorator for jobs. That's really all you have to worry about from the implementation side of things. You're not treating asynchronous work as inherently different than synchronous work. 
Right. Yeah, I haven't used it much. RQ that is, but uh, that sounds like a great way to go about it. Now, I know sending out emails, though, there's a lot of different features, and I didn't really go through every feature that your service has, but, you know, like the idea of having an autoresponder or something that can send out emails, you know, on some type of schedule, do you have all of that scheduled work going through RQ then for sending out those emails for all your subscribers or customers? Yep. RQ is definitely the workhorse for any of the time-oriented stuff that I'm doing. Um, Autoresponding is actually sort of a funny example of being a loaded word depending on what industry you're in. Autoresponder for email marketers means when someone subscribes, I want to automatically respond to them one day after they subscribe and two days after they subscribe and three days after they subscribe, each with different emails. It's almost like building an automation sequence. But when I was someone just building this out without that context, I thought autoresponder meant a like out-of-office email situation of as soon as someone emails me, I'm going to email them back automatically and say like, oh, thanks for signing up. Here are these various interesting things you might want to read, that sort of thing. For both of these use cases, uh, I end up using RQ. There's also a plugin for RQ called, I believe, RQ Scheduler that abstracts out a lot of the date time and the scheduling bits for you, which I've found very, very useful. Um, it's something that's like a, a touch more complex and requires a touch more orchestration than just having a set of crons. Like you could imagine uh, storing all of this in Postgres or something or in your database of here are these tasks that I want to execute here and then. But I, that was one of the really mission critical bits of the functionality that I didn't want to have to worry too much about. And so I felt comfortable offloading that to a third party package. Okay. So speaking of that, though, like scheduling jobs or specifically emails, uh, you know, it's super important, I would imagine, that only one email gets sent out successfully to each recipient. Do you have like a lot of checks in place to prevent duplication? Or is, does RQ kind of do that for you behind the scenes? RQ definitely helps. But your point is exactly right, which is that is kind of the failure case. One of the really scary things about working with emails is that you don't get second chances. If you send something out twice or if you send out something once that is like obviously broken, there's no way to fix it after the fact. So I've spent probably the majority of my backend time working on button down, making sure that those checks and that orchestration is as smooth and as stable as possible. It's been an interesting balancing act because for a while, one of the things I was dealing with is how do I make sure that I'm sending out the emails slowly and methodically enough that I have really, really high certainty that everything is going out as planned while also having high volume, because again, for power users who have like tens of thousands or a hundred thousand subscribers, going very, very slowly on a relatively small application means it might take, you know, an hour or multiple hours for your email to go out when someone wants to be able to hit the send button and have it hit, you know, all of those, hit all of those inboxes instantly. And that's a balancing act I still haven't really found, but I've found that the people who complain about the emails being slow are much less worried and much less angry than the people who are complaining about the emails being broken. So I've always erred on the side of being slow and cautious and investing time and making sure that, that experience works really well. Yeah, because I'm not sure what it's like with Mailgun, but with Amazon SES, like there is a limitation versus like how many emails you can send out per second. I mean, I'm sure you can raise that limit to be higher, but like in my case, I think like 40 is my limit per second. Like there's only so many you can send out in X amount of time. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I'm grateful that these places have those limitations. Um, I still have nightmares about messing up something with the email orchestration logic and like accidentally DDoSing some poor customer's inbox with like thousands of repeated emails. Thankfully, 
I've, I feel like I've made a lot of production mistakes in Button Down, but I haven't messed up anything with like just spamming emails. And for that, I'm personally grateful. Right. So how do you deal with that situation where, let's say one of your bigger customers, they have like 100,000 emails and it gets staggered out over, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. Have you ever run into a situation where at the start of that, like maybe the first 10% of the emails went out fine, but then there was just like that one blip in the radar where Mailgun's API was just down for whatever reason. Like, have you ever run into that? And like, how did you recover from that? <laughs> that is, I'd say not even a one-off case. That is just like a, a fact of life. I've built out a lot of orchestration and back off and retry logic to make sure that when that happens, it's as decoupled and as uh, painless as possible. The like the first ground level thing is we do a lot of smart bashing in Bundown. So at a high level, we're sending out um, N emails with every request and each request is completely decoupled from one another. Where N right now is 100, but depending on the volume of the given day, it can scale up to say like 50 or to 200. If I have confidence in some of the orchestration coming from and some of the metrics coming from like Mailgun or Postmark or SES. Um, so that's one side of it where everything is relatively decoupled from one another. And if any of those batches fail, then that alerts me and alerts button down to kind of shut down the entire batching for that process and wait a certain amount of time, make sure all of the other health check metrics look fine and then proceed further. Oh, okay. But then do you save that state like in a persistent database instead of just depending on Redis, like into Postgres temporarily or no? Uh, not even temporarily, permanently. One of the things that I've found that customers really, really want is that level of introspection into what is happening with their emails. So every time I get any sort of error or final state for a given subscriber or batch of subscribers, that's recorded permanently and vended to the customer. That way, even if I'm telling a customer, hey, this batch of like 20 subscribers failed for some sort of, you know, 500-esque reason, that's presented to the user. If the, if the amount is sufficiently large, I'll be alerted. But in general, uh, customers are fine with a handful of deliveries failing, as long as you have like, you know, three or four nines, as long as you're getting 99.9% .9 of those emails out there. And I've found it useful to be on the side of transparency and just say like, these are the emails that bounced. These are the ones that failed. These are the ones that came back as complaints and you can deal with them or you can use our tools to help you deal with them. Yeah, no, that's definitely uh, a great thing to have for sure. Now, going back to the rest of your tech stack, I mean, is it safe to say that you are using Postgres as your main database? Yes, I love Postgres very much. I've been using them five, six years now. And it's been one of those things of, I've just never even thought about shifting away to say like MySQL or something like a Mongo NoSQL backend. I've never had any serious complaints about being able to do the relational workload that I need to do in Postgres. Okay. And then going on to maybe some other tools that you might be using. I know you try to keep things in-house, but you know you mentioned uh, Mailgun for sending emails out and you process payments with Stripe. Is there anything else that you're using that, that's a part of this uh, service? I think one of the, the biggest duos of services that I really rely on on a day-to-day -day basis are Sentry and Datadog. Uh, Sentry is an exception tracking and an exception handling service. And Datadog is a more general log orchestration and metric service. And these are kind of my bird's eye views into what is actually happening in the critical path of the application. I think I'm pretty skilled at like 
profiling at a database level and being like, okay, is this API call hitting the database too much or hitting it in a way that's inefficient? But one thing that I really haven't developed the skill for yet is being able to have a strong end-to-end epistemic understanding of like where the where the performance of the application is struggling, like where where every single dyno in Heroku is spending too much time. Like what are the what are the choke points? Is it where I'm hitting Redis too often in this given thing? Is it this specific API method is getting too much traffic and is overloading the rest of the system? That's something that I really haven't built a good intuitive understanding of yet. And I rely on these tools a lot to help me make up for it. Yeah, Datadog's uh, really good when it comes to that type of stuff. Like you can get so much insight just from looking at a dashboard of stuff. Yeah, it was, I'm, I, again, I think I'm always a little skeptical of these services that promise like knowledge or promise anything that has the word like transformative or transform your way of doing X or Y or Z. But Datadog, I almost, I feel like I'm reading a paid ad or something. I was able to install Datadog's tracing system that basically says for every single request, here is where you're spending time in that request. And after three minutes, like just idly browsing through that, I found a major bottleneck where I was missing an index on my email events database. I was like, oh, I just need to add this because I'm always filtering based on the specific column. I can just add a B-tree index for this and we'll be good to go. And like within that amount of time, it took me another 10 minutes to commit the index and to get it migrated. And then suddenly like Postgres was just 30% happier. And once I had that aha moment, I was just like, oh, I am such a dummy for not doing this earlier. Like it was kind of an ignorance is bliss situation where I was like, I can scale up Heroku another one or two dinos when I'm seeing I'm getting a lot of load or a lot of timeouts and that's sort of it. I never really took a step back and tried to get a better understanding of where that load was coming from. And Datadog just makes that so much easier. Yeah, that's an amazing success story. And by the way, since you are using Heroku, have you ever played around with their one service that allows you to, I think, what is it called? It's like the PG Extras plugin, maybe? Like, I haven't used it personally, but I'm just curious. I haven't. What Can you talk a bit more about what it does? So the funny thing is, like, I've never actually used it personally, but I ended up writing a Flask extension to port that behavior over to be able to use it without Heroku. But the TLDR, basically, is... They have this set of about like 15 different database queries that are available that you can just like click and run on Heroku and they'll just give you back like a, you know, information about things like, you know, these database queries are slow and, you know, here's how the index hit rate is over here and like, you know, the cache hit rate over there. Like, yeah, there's a lot of interesting metrics that you can get out of it and it it is a free plugin. I will have to check that out right after this. That sounds very useful. Yeah. So also, by the way, when it comes to using Stripe, you mentioned you do have a lot of or some European customers and GDPR is something that's important. Did you implement all of your billing stuff to use Stripe's new APIs then, the ones that have uh, payment intents and all that fun stuff? Yeah, there's one bit of Stripe functionality that I haven't yet implemented yet that's on my to-do list, which is they recently launched a, I think the term is like a customer billing portal. And the idea is if you're a SaaS you have to implement the same set of abstractions of like upgrades, downgrades, pause subscriptions, changing your credit card, all of these things. And Stripe actually built out a hosted version of that that I really want to use. I just haven't been able to carve out the time because I always feel a little silly when I'm implementing something and I'm like, I bet there are 3,000 other developers who have done this exact same thing. And it's not necessarily something you can open source, but I just wish there was a common solution. And the, the customer billing portal really fits that bill. And like, frankly, I'm not in love with my own Stripe integration. Like there's 
just a lot of jink and there's a lot of hard-coded uh, ways to handle like this type of card and this type of like downgrade or upgrade or pro rating logic. And I would love to just offboard all of that to them. So I'm looking to migrate onto that as well. Yeah, that's definitely a very exciting thing. I haven't used it personally, but I've seen a little bit in their docs. And <laughs> Weird bits about my Stripe integration too is that I use rated billing. Um, so I charge you literally based on your number of subscribers. And a lot of the out-of-the-box solutions, both the ones provided by Stripe and the ones provided by third parties, don't allow for that kind of mechanism. Like it's, it's part of the Stripe billing API, but it is sort of an edge case that a lot of these pre-built UIs or these pre-built packages don't have addressed satisfactorily. Right. But do you think you could take advantage of the other one where people can just adjust their plans? Like not the checkout one, but the other one? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think, a thing where, and I've even had, one of my embarrassments is that there's still a lot of stuff even this long into the project that I just do manually. One of the like classic ones is pause subscriptions of, I don't have that in the UI. Like I just have a paragraph tag that says, if you want to pause your subscription, email me and I'll pause it. There's no extra charge or anything. Just because I never actually built out that API logic. And the progression of going from like that janky little manual process that I have to go into the admin and do once or twice a month to being able to have Stripe handle all of that for me feels like a really big win in terms of time saved. Oh, yeah, and for sure. And something like that, like, you know, someone from the outside might think that you're just trying to do like a dark pattern of, you know, trying to keep them to not unsubscribe because, oh, it's like you have to call customer support and answer like this, like IQ test. I mean, <laughs> that's such a common thing in some places. <laughs> exactly. That's definitely one of the things I'm anxious of. There, there's a phrase that's along the lines of like, never attribute to never attribute to malice what can be adequately attributed to like laziness or stupidity or stuff like that. And I feel like I'm personally trying to make sure that I don't have too many cut corners in my application, especially because like emails, there is sort of the dark side, right? Like there's a lot of spammy email users out there. And I had to spend a lot of time back in like 2018 sort of going through a uh, an arms race with people who are trying to use the platform for malicious reasons. Like I, I'm always trying to be cognizant of assume everyone has good intentions, but make sure that you handle the ones that don't. And especially with billing logic, where there was sort of the the moment of realization that I was like making money based on this product. And I had to then commit to a level of service that was commiserate with that. Like it's one thing to have a completely free tool, but it's a completely different thing to like charge people, you know, 50, 100, 150 bucks a month to use it. You then have to provide a, a certain level of service. And I've gotten more than one email to your point that's like, I want to pause my subscription. Are you going to actually reply to this or is this just a ploy? And it's like, no, 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 I really do. I just haven't implemented yet, it yet. Thankfully, the vast majority of my customers like have almost a rapport with me. I try and be very personal in all of my emails and even in my marketing copy to reflect the fact that Button Down is like, it's a passion project. It's just me. I'm not trying to like uh, steal your money or make a living off of it. I just want to build a very reasonable, very powerful tool and let people derive value from it. Yeah, that's a, a great message to put out, right? It's like, honestly, it's just like being honest, right? Saying what it is instead of just trying to come up with some weird marketing story. <laughs> exactly. I've read my fair share of 
uh, SaaS marketing copy where it's like the crazy splash page about how people want to reinvent the world through A-B testing. And it's like, no, sometimes you just want to like build a nice tool and have people use the nice tool. I wish more people adopted this model of you don't need to change the world. You don't need to revolutionize the industry. You just need to build something that you're proud of and that people provide or people find value in. Um, I feel like that message is almost getting drowned out a little bit with all of the uh, hyperbole that goes around in the tech industry nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, you were going on before about uh, having a lot of protection in place to help prevent, you know, bad actors going onto your platform and sending out a whole bunch of spam. Uh, as long as you're okay, do you, do you mind talking about that? Like, I don't want, want you to really go through all of your trade secrets, but like, what are some strategies you use to kind of prevent that? Yeah, it's, I don't think any of these things are trade secrets. It's just a lot of like, uh, sweat and labor. I do as much filtering as I can. I check for spammy addresses, spammy IPs. I force or strongly suggest a lot of people to use double opt-in, which makes folks uh, confirm their subscriptions before they sign up. I pretty aggressively rate limit. Um, I personally monitor any large imports. This was actually sort of a, a funny one. There's a pretty common malicious use case in all newsletter tools is someone trying to basically time the clock of I'm going to import like 5,000 emails that I bought on the dark web, send an email out to all of them with, you know, some spammy link, and then I'll get banned, but I've already sent out the email. So it's just a lot of like uh, manual verifications and review flows of, okay, if I see this weird activity and it's someone who just imported a lot of addresses, but didn't spend any time you know, setting up the rest of their newsletter. They didn't add a description. They didn't add their name. They didn't mess around with any of the integrations. Like those kind of metrics really flag it in the system. It's like, you need to disable this and completely know up all emails. And again, it's one of those things where people will bellyache a little bit and complain of like, oh, I, I just want to send out this test email and you're blocking me from doing it. But it has already caught, I think, more folks who are trying to game the system and use the tool maliciously and then I've had people churn from the platform because they were so time sensitive. Most people who are using newsletters or trying to mess around with a new tool, they don't have a time crunch. It's not like, oh my God, I need to send this email in the next 30 minutes or I'm fired. It's more people messing around with this. Like they want to maybe migrate from, you know, ConvertKit or from MailChimp or something. And they're just playing around with the UI and they'll do the full migration, you know, next weekend or something. And it's making sure that I don't completely drop the ball and have a situation where someone is stuck in limbo for three, four days. But as long as I resolve any issues and do that manual audit within 24 hours, it's been completely fine. Okay, so just for clarity though, do you actually prevent those emails from going out on the spot automatically and then you go and audit it later and then maybe either allowed to go through or not? Yes, exactly. And that's, again, not all emails, just for folks who my system flags is potentially malicious, who kind of fit this profile of, weird IP, have just imported a bunch of stuff, like there's something weird going on there. Right, just a lot of things need to go wrong for that to actually turn on, it sounds. I, one of the things I try and do is like also backtest it, right? Of for all of the things that have been flagged by the system, how many were fine versus how many were malicious. And when I started out, I definitely intentionally cast a wide net of like, I'm gonna err on the side of a lot of manual labor just to make sure that nothing malicious happens. But now it's, close to like a 90 or 95 success, 95% success rate of every now and then there is a completely normal user who just ran afoul of my automation, 
but the vast majority are folks who are trying to use the system for ill. Right. Yeah, it sounds like uh, time well spent if you're catching that majority. Definitely. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about your Heroku setup. Do you want to walk us through what your thought process was for going with Heroku versus using something like, you know, AWS or some other cloud provider? For sure. I think there were sort of two stages to my decision to use Heroku. One was first when I just wanted to get buttoned down live. I didn't really care about traffic or cost or any of the real extenuating factors. I just wanted to like have the thing live. That was the, the first decision stage. And then the second was, okay, now that button down is like kind of stable, kind of mature, should I explore moving it to another platform? The first bit was was really easy and again was sort of motivated by the innovation token concept. I'm definitely not a master of DevOps or sysadmin-esque tasks by any means. And I had experience with sort of using Elastic Beanstalk, which is sort of the orchestration layer around AWS, and I had experience with Heroku. And I felt pretty comfortable doing both, but my experience with Heroku was just simply that you're paying for the abstraction. Like you're going to pay a little bit more per host, a little bit more overall, to get a really nice class of things that you just don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about maintenance as much. You don't have to worry about uh, a lot of the day-to-day things. Because when I was first getting bun down online, it wasn't really top of mind of like, is this going to scale? Is this going to be like really cost efficient infrastructure? I just want something that I can like pay a couple bucks a month at and hit git push Heroku master and have it go live and not have to worry too, too much. And Heroku is so good at that. I think the reason why they've stuck around and been mature, even as like AWS and Google Cloud and Azure and all of these like closer to the metal, definitely cheaper options have arisen is because no one has really mastered the ability to just have that git push magic. Um, there's Versal, which I think is a renamed version of like Zeet or something that now has a very similar flow for front end. But for more back end heavy applications, I haven't seen anything that has like the UI, not in the literal like UI on the Chrome sense, but UI in terms of just how it feels to interact with the back end that Heroku has. So that's the, the first bit of like why I originally chose Heroku. And the reason why I've stuck with it has been, it's definitely at the point where my use of Heroku is by no means like crazy or complex, but it's more heavyweight than it was when I first launched. I think I've got like uh, a dozen or so dynos, which is the Heroku term for basically a box or a service. Um, half of them are web, half of them are sort of async worker threads on our queue, like we talked about. It definitely costs me more to have that set up on Heroku than it would on, say, EC2 or Google Cloud, or even something like you said, like DigitalOcean, where you kind of have that middle ground between really close to the metal and completely managed. And it's not a great answer, but the switching costs just seem kind of prohibitively high for me. Um, I'm paying Heroku maybe a couple hundred bucks a month, which is non-trivial. Like Heroku, I think, is now my probably my second biggest cost every month. But every time I think about switching from Heroku to EC2, for instance, I look at all the things I would have to do, how I would have to stage that migration. And it's a tremendous amount of effort. This is, I think, one of the the clever things about a lot of these platforms is they realize that they can get your tenterhooks in you by making sure you adopt them when they're really small and then kind of uh, 
inundating you with add-ons, right? Uh, here's a Redis instance that you can use that you don't have to worry about. Here's some log drains that you can use that you don't really have to think about. And then each time you adopt one of those add-ons that they offer, it makes it more and more frictionful to move off the, to a different platform. So I'm, I'm a happy victim uh, to a certain extent of I'm now using so many bits and parts of Heroku that trying to move off of it would be like a pretty serious undertaking. I think I would revisit that decision if if and when Bundown kind of hits a next order of magnitude of infrastructural costs. If I do the napkin math once, I'm paying, you know, like a thousand bucks a month to Heroku. It's like, oh, I really should just spend a month, buckle down, convert this all to a cheaper solution. I definitely would. But I don't think I'm quite there yet. I don't think the savings I would get of like a couple hundred bucks a month by completely neglecting my roadmap and just doing internal infrastructural stuff would be time better spent than if I were to just spend that time working on features or marketing or things that would bring in more revenue. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good way to go about it, right? It's like, just worry about it when it's an actual problem, right? That, that really falls back to just development in general. Like if you follow that, you can't really go too wrong. And I've also never heard that term happy victim before. That's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it has uh, quite made into the popular parlance, but I think there's often like this sense that industry lock-in or platform lock-in is a purely negative thing. And it definitely has a lot of negative consequences, but when you go all in on a given ecosystem, whether it's a third-party platform like Heroku or to like kind of go to the other logical extreme, the fact that I've sort of locked myself in to using, say, Python or Django, it means that it's harder to do things like if I were to try and set up a, I don't know, like a Go microservice to handle sending emails, like that's probably going to be more performant, but going outside of the walled gardens of my application and trying to dabble in multiple languages, like there's just going to be that additional tax that you have to pay that you don't have to worry about when everything is sort of a Django Mongo, uh, Django monoservice, and you can just sort of not worry about interop, not worry about the service layer quite as much. Yep, for sure. Now you mentioned that you are using quite a few dinos and workers. Are, are you using like their standard box or like whatever grades are above that? I know they have a couple of different tiers. Yeah, I think there's like three tiers. There's the, the free or hobby tier, which is really not production ready in any sense, just because if your dino, I think it's, if it doesn't receive any requests in a given time span, it sleeps. Like that's how they sort of save cycles on it. There's the standard tier, which is, I want to say 25 bucks per dyno per month. That's what I'm using, uh, which isn't a strong box by any means. It's You get maybe a gig of RAM, a couple cores, and I'm using that for both the web side of things and the async side of things. There's also the, I think their marketing term for it is performance tiers, which is you pay either 50 or 100 or 200 bucks per dyno per month, and you just get more and more specs. I actually haven't found that I really need that because most of the stuff I'm not doing, and most of the stuff I'm doing isn't particularly compute heavy. I just need to be able to scale horizontally to pull in more traffic. So every now and then I'll scale up the number of uh, web or worker threads just so I can handle like a lot of incoming traffic or a lot of outgoing emails, but I haven't need to haven't needed to really scale vertically and make the boxes themselves larger. Right, that makes sense and kind of falls in line with how most web apps are, right? Like probably not CPU bound unless you have like a very specific use case like, you know, encoding videos or something. Exactly. There was a point at which I was messing around with doing offline analytics 
for button-downs. So if you send out an email, you get a bunch of statistics about like your open rates and your click-through rates and your unsubscribe and what types of inboxes and browsers folks are, are viewing this in. And this is actually one of the few like compute-heavy things just because you if you're trying to get how a subscriber responded to a given email, like let's say uh, John Doe at gmail.com opened and clicked, but then finally unsubscribed to really represent that in a meaningful way for a newsletter. You have to look at all of their prior history of interactions as well. So it ends up being this like, okay, I need to pull all of these uh, transition events from the database and all of these historical events from the database and munch them and collate them in a relatively fast way that was relatively difficult to do in line or do online as soon as someone like requests their analytics. So I was messing around at one point with trying to do it offline and basically having a uh, hourly or periodic cron to do it. And that I was actually using one of these stronger performance boxes for, but it ended up not being quite its weight. Uh, it just didn't seem to offer a lot of the value that I needed because then I had to worry about, okay, what if someone is doing something or like unsubscribing an hour after they send the email, I've already processed the information for this email. So now it's inaccurate. It ended up being one of those chicken and egg things. Right. Also maybe from like the marketing side or whatever, if you have a very big list, you may decide to segment that or do some AB testing and send it out to like 10%, but you don't want to change the title or something until you know the results of that before you send it to the rest. Like if you had to wait an hour between that, maybe that's a little bit sketchy. Yep, exactly. Okay, so going back to the Heroku side, you know, you mentioned how they have, uh, what did you call them, tendrils or tentacles? Yeah, uh, tenterhooks. <laughs> tenterhooks. <laughs> so speaking of tenterhooks then, uh, do you want to go over maybe some Heroku plugins that you have that you use on the site? Yeah, the core few ones I use are probably familiar to most folks who are using Heroku. Uh, Heroku's business model, I think, is actually pretty clever, which is the majority of the margin they make are on these add-ons. Uh, you can almost think of it as one of the things I learned about the coffee industry. I was a, uh, <laughs> a barista for a very short-lived semester in college. And one of the open secrets is uh, most coffee shops don't actually make anything on the like black drip coffee themselves. They make it on things like baked goods or expensive lattes where you're spending five bucks for just a little bit of espresso and a bunch of milk. I feel like that's sort of how Heroku works as well. Like they're definitely making a solid profit on their core dinos, but their plugin system is really where they get a lot of their profit. Um, for anything that you might have to spin up next to, again, a EC2 or a digital ocean box, Heroku probably has an official third-party plugin for it. Or I guess in this case, it would be a first-party plugin. Um, things like Heroku Redis, which is just click a button, get a Redis instance that's attached to your dino. Or Heroku Postgres, Heroku MySQL. A lot of those things I have fallen into the pattern of like, if I think I'm going to need to use Redis, or I think I'm going to need to use some sort of paper trailing or login system, I will pull in the Heroku one because it's so easy to get set up, evaluate that technology, see if it's right, and then either kind of fall victim to them again and slowly ramp up my usage of it. They do usage-based tiers. So it's like, if you're using... Uh, a very small number of Redis keys, you're barely touching Redis whatsoever, you can probably get away with a free tier or a $10 a month tier. But if you're using it for a production level workload, then it gets into the $50, $100 a month tiers. Um, similar things with like logging where it scales usage based on traffic. Um, that being said, the best Heroku quote unquote plugin I use, I don't even think they describe it as a plugin. I think it's now just a feature, which is Heroku's log drain system. Uh, they have done a lot of really, really nice abstractions around logging and metrics. 
where you can plug in arbitrary third parties into your Heroku app. And just by specifying like a UDP URL or an HTTPS like log drain URL, and it will handle all of the logging routing for you. This coupled with Python and Django's pretty robust logging system means that it's really easy to divert all of your logging infrastructure to these third parties without having to rely on Heroku. Heroku does have some in-house logging stuff and some in-house metric stuff, but I've found that using Datadog and using some of these dedicated third parties is just more useful for me. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, people knock on Heroku a bit for being expensive and whatever, whatever, but they actually do help you develop your app, I guess, in a, in a nice way, right? There's always that... Uh what is that? The 12 factor, right? It's like they force you to make sure to, okay, maybe I shouldn't be uploading my files directly to the file system. Okay. Maybe I should be using environment variables for this or that, you know, maybe I should, you know, log to standard out and, and yeah, I guess in the end, it, it kind of makes you just architect your app even better. Yeah. I think of Heroku as almost like a training wheels for how to do real deployments, right? For the exact reasons you outlined things like, uh, setting like config using environment variables and doing all these things. It's part of Heroku's kind of like desire path, the way they force you to deploy and force you to integrate with them. And I learned these things, not because I knew abstractly they were the right thing to do, but because I had experience back like in, you know, 2013, a long time ago, where I didn't know what the best practices were with getting something production ready and something that was secure but I knew how to build on Heroku. So I almost developed that muscle memory of trying to use these 12 factor principles, not because I thought they were abstractly good, but just because that's how Heroku taught me. And it's almost like one of those uh, time to leave the nest situations where at some point I'm gonna move off of Heroku, but I'm still very grateful for the platform for making it so easy for me to learn and launch simultaneously. Yep, for sure. Now, maybe do you wanna walk us through what your deployment process looks like? I mean. I would imagine most people listening are familiar with, yes, you know, you just get pushed to the Heroku origin and you're good to go. But do you want to just walk us through it? Like maybe do you have like a CI set up? Do you also push to GitHub as well? Like, please let us know. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Git push Heroku is thankfully slash sadly behind me because to your point, now I just push straight to my GitHub remote. Um, I switched, I want to say last year from using Circle CI to using GitHub Actions to do all of my CI steps. Actions is great. It's sort of GitHub's first party way of handling CI things, similar to uh, Jenkins or Circle or Travis. One of the things I like about it, though, is you can pretty arbitrarily specify work items. So my CI process and the number of checks that GitHub makes is it's not quite as robust as I'd like it to be, but it's pretty robust. I obviously run my Python and my front end test suites. I check for any visual regressions using Storybook, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I look for any linting errors. I look for any pending migrations. This is something that's bit me a, a couple times of Django has this really, really nice migrations framework that automatically detects changes to your ORM or to your data model and will create the scripts that you need to push your database forward. But I've fallen a number of times prey to be like, I'm going to add this one attribute or change this uh, like one attribute of a model, but I don't actually pull in or commit the, the pending migration so that my database is out of state with the application and being able to offload that to the CI layer through GitHub Actions has been really nice. So GitHub runs all the action steps. I make sure everything is green and good to go. And then it'll automatically push to a staging server on Heroku. Heroku has a pipelines integration that 
be honest, I haven't used as much as I probably should. My extent of using it is basically this sort of staging, make sure I can deploy to staging, then deploy to production step, and also the ability to spin up arbitrary apps for uh, branches or for PRs. If I'm building out a new feature and I want to be able to test to it, test it remotely, if I'm like integrating with some third-party service or I need to do something that gives me a bit more confidence than just testing it locally, uh, Heroku and GitHub make that easy. But beyond that, the the deployment process once CI passes is still kind of naive. There have been a couple of things that I've really wanted to do, like a uh, stage traffic. Uh, so like, you know, do a deploy to a couple hosts and then promote it to the rest of production or do something like blue-green deployments to make sure downtime isn't particularly bad. Though Heroku handles the downtime situation well internally. But beyond that, it's it's pretty simple. I wait for CI. I make sure that my CI steps are as robust as possible because and I, I feel like my motif lately is I am very lazy and I am very dumb and I need to make sure that I have a lot of safety nets in place to catch me when I'm being either lazy or dumb. And so I've been throwing more and more at the CI layer because I feel like that's the strongest possible case of if something is hitting master and getting deployed, even if it gets caught staging, I want to have as much confidence as possible that every single check I can make that the code base is in a safe and reliable state has been passed. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and by the way, do you also run like some type of like linter before you even go out at running your tests? Yeah, I have both the linter set up at the CI step and at the pre-commit step. Um, I'm using Prettier and ESLint for the front end, which I think are, are at this point sort of the, the de facto leaders. Uh, they're just the most popular linters. I really like that they're very, very opinionated, which is why I'm also using Black, which is a formatter for Python. Both of these, both Black and Prettier, kind of come from this Go format uh, school of linting and formatting, which is being opinionated is better than being flexible. I don't really have to want to have to worry about messing around with white space or dealing with like trailing commas or anything. I don't want to fuss with configuration too much. I just want to like completely remove linting and completely remove syntactical quirks from my brain, uh, which is why I really like these tools because they're just like, you can't configure us at all. You get maybe one or two things to mess around with. But besides that, if you're using us, you are using our specific style guide and you have to abide by it, which for me is just, I know especially if this were an environment where I'm working with a handful of other engineers, that could be contentious. But because it's just me, I'm like, okay, perfect. That sounds great. I don't have to think about this. I can just let the linter handle all of the presentational aspects. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that as well. And honestly, even if you're working with a couple of devs, I find that the linter to be even more valuable because then it's like you don't end up with having, you know, seven different code styles in your code base. You just have the one. Exactly. So do you want to go uh, maybe into a little more detail about the migration setup? Because right now, or, or maybe how Heroku even deals with those zero downtime deploys if you have a couple of dynos running. Like there's always that complex problem, right? Of, of if your application is uh, in the middle of being like having a rolling restart done, it's like two versions of your apps are technically running in parallel, but you know, database migrations thrown into the mix could, could make that actually very complicated. Uh, so do you want to go into that a little bit more? Yeah, and this is almost like an unsatisfying answer, but I haven't figured out the perfect way to handle this at an infrastructural layer. What I've ended up doing is trying to just structure my code changes in a way that if I have to make some sort of breaking change to the database or to something in the application where I'm, like you're saying, invalidating a previous slug or invalidating a previous state of the application, um, I'm, I try and structure all of my code changes such that it minimizes the effect of that happening. 
The most common version of this is sort of a two-phase thing where first you introduce the non-breaking version of the change. Uh, classic example, if you're renaming the variable foo on a model to bar, first you introduce the new uh, attribute bar and then you remove foo while also doing a what I call a force refresh. And this isn't a, a new or novel thing that I've invented by any means, but one of the really useful tips I've had is the ability to invalidate front-end applications. So if you're someone who's using button down constantly, you might have it open in a tab in your browser for like hours upon hours at a time. The way I try and handle that to make sure that you're always on a latest version of the application is I actually have a allow list and deny list of specific Git commits and Git hashes that's pushed to the backend. What this means is I can detect, if I know I'm making a breaking change, I can detect that, okay, someone who's not on this specific version or is on this old version of my front end compiled slug needs to get a force refresh in their browser. So the next time that they focus on the tab that has button down in it, they'll just get a quick refresh. Or in some cases, the next time they click on a link, instead of it being a like SPA link where the new page is pushed on, but it's not actually refreshing the page, it'll be sort of like a hard link and it will refresh the page. This isn't a um, <laughs> this isn't an elegant solution by any means, but it's been a good way of making sure that folks are always on a relatively up-to-date version of the code base. And I don't have to worry about the case where, oh, someone is hitting this old API with these old params and I'm getting a 500 now and I can't even repro it because it's on an old commit. And there's like that kind of friction that piles up, especially because there are times where I try and deploy relatively quickly and relatively frequently. I try to avoid these sort of monolithic changes that hit master and completely change things. But that means that you could have a version of the application that is, you know, dozens of commits out of date in the span of like a day or two. So trying to always push folks to be on the most recent version of the application has been really useful. Yeah, no, so that is a very tricky uh, problem to solve. Like, how do you have this set up then server side? Do you just have like a, you know, like a model or a table in your database that keeps track of these Git commits and then you do a lookup on certain actions? The first part is exactly true. I have a Django model that is just, um, I think the line is commits requiring refresh. And uh, every single backend request that I make to uh, button down in one of the request headers is the front end application's current version of uh, the commit. And then I have a middleware within Django that checks that, requ that request header against this database. And I, I cache the database pretty heavily and evict it. So it's not like I'm making a Postgres lookup for every request. It's loaded into memory whenever it changes. And it's usually only around five to nine commits at a time. Um, and then if there's a collision, I return in a response header needs refresh. And then the front end application knows that and will on either the next navigation or after a certain amount of time, depending on the type of uh, commit. I sort of have a Boolean flag on the model that's like needs refresh immediately or can wait. Um, then it'll refresh just in response to those outgoing requests. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you put a lot of thought into that one. It was, I definitely didn't come up with this on my own. I ran into some prior art. I think I was doing some research around how to solve this exact problem where I was like, I don't want to do something super, super heavyweight of like, trying to have to figure out how to do rolling commits and all of this stuff. I need something that's like a little bit hacky, but not too hacky that will get the job done. 
I'm in the position where having, you know, a handful of 500s and having some background radiation noise due to this issue is not the biggest deal in the world. What I'm really concerned about is when those like when that background radiation manifests as really large customer pain of someone being like, I was doing this thing and suddenly all my progress is lost. The the nightmare scenario for me in a lot of respects is because people will write in the button down UI, like they're typing hundreds or thousands of words. And if I introduce some sort of application state that like completely nullifies their work, like let's say you try and hit save and refresh and suddenly everything you've been writing for the past hour is gone. Like that is the worst possible scenario for me to introduce. And so I'm not worried about getting everything perfect, but I really need to get those core, core critical paths perfect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's nothing more frustrating than just writing into a big text area for all this time and then you go to save it and it's like, oh, session timeout. Whoops. (laughs) I've had a nightmare of a time with, what is it? Uh, Workday, which is sort of a classic um like hr sort of application that does a lot of like your session times out after 15 minutes or even my bank i think i run into this which is the worst because often you're doing like really time sensitive or really important things when you log into your wells fargo and you like write this long email to customer service or for a dispute or something and then you hit submit and you get sort of that blank text box that says sorry your session has timed out please log in and try again and like that is the worst possible customer experience i try really really hard to avoid that yeah, no, that happens to me all the time. It's like I set up this very complex filter search in the bank and then I'm like moving that over to my own local tools and I forget to like touch the browser for 10 minutes and boom, it's all gone. Now, speaking of boom and it's all gone, do you want to walk us through maybe what you what you do to plan for disasters or unexpected events? Like, you know, how frequently do you back up your database and possibly even, you know, user uploaded content? Yeah, for sure. The answer is hopefully like sensible and uninteresting, which is I have daily rolling backups Uh, of Postgres. I migrated a while back from using Heroku's Postgres, sort of their built-in first-party thing, to using RDS, which is AWS's hosted database solution. RDS has a lot of uh, quirks, for lack of a better word, but one story they have really, really good is the backup story because it's designed for most very enterprise-y workloads. So I have like daily rolling backups as well as uh, I think weekly and monthly snapshots that are in cold storage. Um, And that's been useful not just for like disaster series, disaster scenarios, but also situations where I just need to look at the state of a database. Before I was doing some of these more conventional things like uh, tombstoning old records to make sure that if a user deletes something, it's not actually deleted, it's just deleted from them, unless they need to do a completely hard delete. I would have situations where a customer would be like, sorry, I changed this tag and I ended up deleting it and I deleted some subscribers, but I didn't want to do that. Can you restore it for me? And being able to just like spend three minutes restoring the old state and being like, here's the CSV import that you had was really, really useful. Even though it wasn't a disaster, like I can build out a lot of those use cases for the disaster as well. In terms of things like UGC or user uploaded content, um, a lot of that is stored at the database layer. The one exception is user uploaded images. I think that's really the the only media type that I have that exists outside of the database. And that I'm using Glacier for. Glacier is sort of the cold storage side of Amazon's S3, which is if you want to hold on to a lot of media or a lot of arbitrary files, but you don't need to worry about accessing them. You just want to have like a safe copy of them somewhere safe. Glacier handles that really well. And so I, I think I have a weekly or perhaps bi-weekly 
um, cron that takes all relatively old images and throws them into Glacier just in case. I haven't had to use that besides just doing the end-to-end test every once in a while to make sure that it's working as expected, thankfully. Um, but that's been a good thing for, I think, my day-to-day peace of mind is making sure even if like S3 becomes completely unavailable or, or my Postgres instance explodes for whatever reason, I'll lo- lose some amount of data, but relatively little. So lots of great stuff to uh, unwind there. So let's start with what you said about using RDS instead of Heroku for Postgres. Was there, you know, was it really based on just them having a better backup plan or did it come down to cost or, uh, you know, why did you choose that one? For sure. It was a combination of cost and I, I guess ease of use is the right way to phrase this, or not even ease of use, ease of migration. I talked earlier about sort of this hinterhooks thing where it's really hard to pull out individual bits that you're using in Heroku. Um, and it's really hard to do the overall migration. But one of the exceptions here was moving over Postgres. And this I actually credit Postgres for because Postgres makes it so easy to export the entire state of your, your database and to set up sort of the read-only replica situation where if you want to migrate from provider A to provider B, uh, you can create an instance on provider B that's read-only, so it will get all traffic, and then you can switch over between the two databases relatively seamlessly. So that was one of those situations where I had done that before, not with Heroku to RDS, but from one Postgres instance to another. So I had a sense of how to proceed there. And the the price situation was pretty dramatic. Uh, Heroku's Postgres, because I pushed so much to Postgres, was getting not prohibitively expensive, but expensive enough where I was like, I can probably save, you know, two, 300 bucks a month with 30, 45 minutes of work. And that's the point where the calculus was like, okay, it's going to end up taking longer than that, but not so long that I shouldn't look into this. Um, another example or another reason why I do like RDS very selfishly is AWS is very, very friendly with credits. Um, and this is true, I think, at this point of any of the major three providers, if you're at the point where you're having a database load or a individualized workload for a given application that's like less than a couple hundred bucks a month, you can probably find a way to get a lot of AWS credits or a lot of GCP or a lot of Azure credits. So realizing that I had an email from two years ago that was, I think, something like $20,000 in RDS credits, I was like, okay, I should use this somehow. Like I definitely... This feels like free money that I am not using. And so that motivated my migration as well. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Like, I, I know you don't have exactly maybe 20K of credits, but that would go probably a pretty long ways. You know, that could be years of hosting potentially, unless there's some like time bomb on the credits. Exactly. Yeah, I think most of them expire after either 12 or 18 months. I'm sadly running close to my 18 month mark. I migrated over around a year and a half ago. Um, so I'm going to end up, I looked into what the prospective bill would be last month and it's still like the migration was still worth it. I think the size of the Postgres instance I'm paying for is relatively small, but the getting the amelioration of having those free credits to kind of incentivize the migration is very smart. There's a reason all of these cloud providers are doing it. They're the startups and the like SMBs and the small businesses on 
AWS and on GCP and on all of these providers are almost a rounding error. It's less a revenue source and more a marketing opportunity because these platforms really, really want the companies who end up exploding in size, who grow like four or five orders of magnitude, who have then spent their entire time on AWS being like, okay, well, I guess we're going to be using AWS, even though we have a thousand times the traffic, because that's what we've been doing this entire time. It's very clever on their side. And it's, you know, frankly, selfishly useful on my side. I don't plan on growing to a hundred times my current volume, but I'm happy to take the free credits that AWS is giving me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, about the hooks going in, it's like, you know, usually it's the data that's the hardest part to migrate out. So, yeah, it's nothing harder than moving, like, how do you move like 50 gigs, you know, a 50 gig database from host A to host B with zero downtime? Like, it could be done, but it, it you know, it is a very tedious process. Definitely. So going back to like disaster recovery and unexpected events, do you have anything hooked up so that you get some type of notification if something goes wrong? Like maybe the site stops, you know, reporting a 200 or anything like that? Yeah, I, for a while, was using a status page, which has some paging functionalities. I still use status page as a uptime page that just says, like, it's almost a, a UI and nothing else behind it. It basically says what your uptime is for the day, what some ping and various statistics are. And I was also using some functionality that it had that would basically check to see if you could get a 200, if you could... Uh, hit the API, basically hitting the ping endpoint, that sort of thing. I've migrated those use cases over to Fathom. Fathom is what I'm using for like in-page analytics. It's sort of a, uh, a privacy-based Google Analytics alternative. And they recently also offered uptime monitoring. So I'm now using Fathom for that as well. I also have some basic, not basic isn't even the right word, some, I guess, very naive alerting on my end that hits Slack. I use Slack for a lot of just sort of uh, log trailing and making sure that nothing awry is going on in the platform. And one of the biggest metrics that I'm concerned with that's really hard to do with some of these black box systems like Fathom or like Status Page or Pingdom is making sure that emails go out. The most common failure mode that Buttondown runs into that I worry about is like someone sent out 2,000 emails, but only 1,900 of them got delivered. And so that's the thing I really want to get uh, paged out because that's time sensitive as well. So I have some infrastructure and infrastructure is probably overkill, uh, calling it overkill. It's just hitting a Slack webhook that I have push notifications turned on for. So if something appears in my Slack alerts channel, I will get a push notification on my phone or on my watch and I can look into what's going on there. Oh, nice. So you kind of reserve like really the serious errors for actually getting notified in, in a device that, you know, is important to you. It's not like you're just getting overloaded with like, okay, maybe this through like a 404 or, you know, something that should be fixed, but isn't like mission critical. Exactly. I use Sentry as sort of the first line of defense for just exception and error handling of if something throws a 500 or I'm getting a bunch of like bad requests for some reason, I want to know about it, but it's probably not so important that I need to be paged and I need to look at it right the second. I'm really sensitive with trying to preserve my level of like flow and focus on a day-to-day -day basis. So what I do is at the start of every day, I'll look through all of the new Sentry errors. I'll page through anything that looks interesting. I'll try and keep it as much of a blank slate as possible so it's not very noisy. And then I'll sift through like, okay, what's something that really needs to get addressed? What's something that's not a big deal? What's something that I can completely ignore? But I don't have that level of granularity going into what's, you know, paging me or sending me a push notification every single, you know, morning or day. I reserve that for the things that are really, really, oh, God, this is time sensitive. Someone is having a bad customer experience. I need to look into this ASAP. 
Right. Yeah, no, that, that is a great way to go about it. And speaking of great things, do you maybe want to get into like some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? Yes, absolutely. I think the biggest one that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the importance of figuring out when and where to record things. Um, I And when I say record things, I'm almost being intentionally vague. Recording could mean having a Postgres model entry for a certain task that you did. It could mean just logging to syslog. It could mean uh, sending a push notification to Slack. You get a lot of advice when launching a project that's like uh, one of two buckets. There's one bucket that is, okay, don't worry about any reliability stuff. Don't worry about architecture stuff. Just get something out there because the MVP is the most important part and you need to get customer feedback and you need to like get the thing out there before you worry too much about making sure that it is purely production ready. And I think that's true in a lot of contexts because I think at least for me, I'm an engineer who loves sweating the small stuff and loves uh, tinkering with things until I feel like they're quote unquote complete. And so if I hadn't read a lot of advice along those lines, I probably would have never launched button down because I was too busy, you know, futzing with configuration. Then there's the other side of that, that bucket, which is the, no, you need to make sure that everything is perfectly orchestrated because the worst thing you can do is have a bad first impression. The worst thing you can do is run into data loss, even if it's a pre-launch because the launch is so important for folks. I think I would advise something of a middle path. The The one thing that really surprised me with Bundown and other projects is that the launch is important. It really is, but it's not the end-all be-all. It is not the thing that's going to make or break your app. When I launched Bundown, I got like maybe 100 or 200 users in the first month. It was not like a big splash by any means. I was really happy with the reception because I was just building it for me originally. But I was like, oh, this isn't like a big thing. I don't have to worry about this too much. Bundown ended up growing purely organically over time. And it wasn't the the launch that was like the Y-intercept, so to speak. It was just the putting in the work time and time again. And what that meant was, I also needed to put in the work with logging and recording and making sure that my infrastructure was up to snuff. It's, there's no magic bullet, but you do have to strike a balance between investing in your infrastructure and your recording and your logging and your production readiness and investing in everything else. The reason I think it's important to think of those as two separate lanes is because there are situations where they kind of commingle with one another. An example I think of a lot is where can you build out logging and tracing and production helpfulness and sort of this uh, production readiness that will also help the business logic of your application. Thinking about things of like, okay, how am I going to decouple this? How am I going to make sure that uh, my application is structured in a way that I don't have to worry about just this one thing going down, that there are graceful paths. I feel like the more time you spend on that in not necessarily the short term, not necessarily the long term, but the medium term, it pays out dividends. Like you can't just be like, okay, I have finished infrastructure. I have finished reliability. It's time to move on to feature work because nothing on the underlying infrastructure will ever change ever again. It's a constant thing that you have to always be thinking about. Okay. Yeah, man, that's like tremendous advice there, right? It almost can't be better in, in terms of like how to actually make a product and continue iterating on it and making sure things work when they need to work. Because yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that where it's so easy to get trapped in your own world where you just never ship anything because you know, this thing isn't refactored perfectly. Exactly. And I know there are definitely parts of my application that I was a little too precious with of a, oh, I really want to get 
this part of archival imports perfect and it needs to be completely stateless and I need to have all of these things. And then one of the very humbling things that I would recommend too is especially for the things that you poured a lot and a lot of effort into and like really sweated the details, like call your own bluff. Make sure you're looking at how much people are using those things after they launch. I spent, I think it was like two months working on subscriber information features, which was hooking into uh, services like Clearbit or Full Contact, where given a subscriber's email address, you could, uh, if you had an API key, like get their first name and last name and all of this other stuff, because I had one person ask me about it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go into a rabbit hole on this and I'll build out this feature and do all of these things. And then I looked at how many folks were using that feature like three months after I launched it. And the number was in the single digits. Like I spent so much time and energy and like verve and refactoring and all of this stuff on this thing that wasn't getting used. And that was like a really important learning experience for me, which is making sure you can have the critical path really sound as good. But having this beautiful architecture isn't pointless, but it's not as valuable if no one is using it. So trying to have a tracer bullet of a feature or a tracer bullet of a part of your application out so people can use it and you can validate the interest in it. And then you can go back and make sure that it's robust and reliable and all of these other things and that it does scale to the rest of your user base. Right. So on the topic of that, like, what do you do now to kind of feel out what features someone might want instead of just like, you know, waiting until you get one email? Like, do you have a centralized system in place to kind of track what people are doing? Or maybe you just have some analytics on the back end where you can measure uh, some certain things? Yeah, it's a pretty low-tech solution. I use Notion for a lot of stuff related to button down. I use it for tracking bugs, tracking my roadmap, tracking folks who are like uh, requesting given features, who are asking for you know coupons, that sort of thing. I basically have it as my, my personal CRM and my personal sort of like second brain for everything related to button down. And for any potential roadmap feature, I make sure that I tag the person who requested it with their permission, of course, uh, in the thing, in the actual notion item. That way I both have a sense of how many people are requesting it and it makes marketing it and creating a beta for it really easy. I don't have a strict rule or strict sense of like, okay, when, you know, five people or when a dozen people create this feature, I'm going to then prioritize it because it really varies from feature to feature. If it's just a like, tiny thing that's going to take me a couple hours as long as like two or three people mention it i'm like okay this is probably worth doing i can send it to them they can validate it um and that's good but if it's something that's going to dictate you know a couple months of my roadmap a, a big example of this that i'm working on right now is internationalization which is something i really wanted to do but couldn't justify spending the effort for because it was sort of this morass of the unknown. I didn't know what I would be getting into. I knew it was a lot of effort and I knew it would be a lot of time too. There are a lot of moving pieces. So I really waited to collect a lot of inbound interest around internationalization. I think I ended up getting like, it was somewhere close to 50 or 60 folks all saying like, I would pay specifically for this feature before I shifted effort over to it. And then it's a really nice feedback loop of you then have the cohort of people to be your personal guinea pigs, your beta testers, your feedback folks, um, which has been really, really nice as well. Yeah, for sure. Although that it gets dangerous when you ask for user feedback to when to implement a certain feature, because it's like, I know there are certain products, like let's say the Microsoft terminal, where it's like their most number one feature ever from like, you know, thousands of people uploaded. It's like, well, we want the terminal to, to support like emojis. But then like, meanwhile, there's, you know, blaring, blaring things wrong. Like you can't even like zoom in with a hotkey or something like that. Well, now you can, but you know, 
There's a very, uh, like, you really need to put in, I guess, the final say on, on what features get done, right? Yeah, and frankly, that is an area that I'm bad at, um, and I need to get better at. Like, I really, really like my user base, and I try and be, like, as unfailingly applied as possible. And I'm very guilty of getting randomized of, like, oh, I'm working on this project, but here's this other customer who I really, really like who's requesting something that totally makes sense and it's not on my roadmap right now, but it could be and maybe I can just spec this out in a day and get it done. And like, that's a failure mode I personally run into a lot that I need to get better at because I'm so enthusiastic about trying to provide value as quickly as I can for my customers. One of the tactics that I've been trying to employ recently uh, to help this is being more aggressive with using the roadmap, the public roadmap as a sense of truth, where it's not just like me talking with this customer, it's this customer bringing up a bug report or a feature request and me being like, okay, place down the roadmap, here are all these other things ahead of it, here are these things behind it. This is the link you can track to know when I'm going to start working on it, like what week or what sprint or what month I'm going to pick it up and have it be in my queue. And I think shifting the onus and shifting the source of truth away from me and onto this third party, even if the third party is completely owned and operated by me, is really useful because it gives all of these customers and all of these users the sense of context of all of the other things I'm juggling. Right. Yeah. No, having a, a public roadmap is a very, very good idea. I, I wish more companies did that. But Justin, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on for sure. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, you can check out my personal site at jmduke.com and you can check out Buttondown at buttondown.email. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.